Um, hello and welcome to our next episode of Arable Chat, a podcast brought to you by agronomist and arable farmer. I'm your host, John Swire, and joining me in this episode are guests Gareth Jones, technical leader UK at FMC Agro Limited, and Glyn Jones, environmental economist at Ferrer. For more latest news, head to agronomistandablefarmer.co.uk. Uh, my guest today is um, Gareth Jones, who is the technical lead for FMC, um, agrochemical company. And so welcome, Gareth, to the podcast. Uh, first of all, tell me a bit about yourself and how you how you ended up at FMC. Yeah, morning, John. Thanks for the invite. Nice to be here. Um yeah, so I've been in the industry longer than I care to think about, to be honest. I started a crop protection degree from Nottingham Trent, finished in 94, um, spent the next few years working in field trials uh, for AgriSearch. Um, so really good experience there. Lots to learn quite a lot very quickly. Um, spent a bit of time with them working around Europe in the early noughties uh, and ended up working left there and ended up working for Cheminova, which is how I came into the FMC side of the business when they acquired Cheminova in 2015. Okay, and and, and tell me a bit, FMC is relatively new, so tell me a bit about FMC and how they came about. Yeah, it's it's an interesting business and it's it's very much come together from from lots of different parts. American business started actually in 1883 um, when the original guy invented a new insecticide spray pump. They moved from that, um, became the Food Machinery Corporation, hence FMC, in the uh, end of the 20s, and really specialized on, on machinery. So there's Quite a few people in the eastern side of the country certainly know them for, for P-Viners. Um, in the US, they're actually uh, better known for being the sort of equivalent of, uh, of Dennis over here. They used to make fire engines. Oh, right. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but in the sort of mid-20th century, came out of the machinery side of it and became a pure play chemical business. Yeah, um, and really, uh, in terms of European involvement, they did sell um, FMC did sell their products in Europe, um, in the UK, prior to 2015 uh, through Belgium. So, uh, yes. like Centium and Spotlight and these kind of products uh, were, were distributed by Belgium. But in 2015, when they bought Cheminova, um, they did that ostensibly to give them a, a, a European distribution network, uh, and that included Headland. So in 2015, FMC bought Headland, um, and then in 2017, as part of the conditions for the uh, the Dow Dupont merger to form, Co- um, they had to divest a significant part of the business, including their development pipeline. And we were fortunate enough to be in a position where we could acquire it. So okay, okay. in 2017, we got things like the sulfonyl urea herbicides, the diamide insecticides, uh, but perhaps more relevant to the conversation we're having today that we got the pipeline as well yes um, and the people that came with it so there's globally i think there's about six and a half thousand employees at fmc of which about 800 are actually in r d so um 
yeah, FMC had already made a decision that they wanted to be a discovery business and, and, and mm. source their own actives again, but it was a really good opportunity. So we've, uh, yeah, it's a very different business now from uh, where it was even in 2015 when they first. Okay. So um, I suppose the pipeline is the, is the thing we need to be talking about. Now, <laughs> you do have quite an exciting product that is quite near the end of the pipeline i believe yeah yeah we've got uh, we've got isoflex uh, which is our one of our new herbicides which hopefully will hit the uk market in 2024 yes uh, that's what we're aiming towards mm-hmm. um yeah and that go into uh, into cereals winter wheat and winter barley um, but we'll also have a product which will go into oilseed rape as well so yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah no it's an interesting it's an exciting one and, and what's it? What's its primary aim? Yeah, well, it's got it's got good. Uh, it's it's the background to it. It was a product, or sorry, an active which um, FMC first sort of came across when they were developing Clomazone. Um, okay. And yep. it basically sat on the shelf until FMC decided that they wanted to uh, be a, a, an R&D business again when they reevaluated a lot of the, uh, the, the, the actives they'd got just sitting on the shelf. And they realized that it had got good activity on key grassweed species as well as a lot of the broadleaf weed species mm-hmm. that you, you get with the, uh, the Clomazone-type products. So from uh, a UK perspective, cereals in winter wheat, it, it's got good activity on blackgrass. Excellent. Uh, it's yeah, it's it, better on ryegrass, which again ticks another good box for us. Um, but it's got really good broadleaf weed activity as well, and one of the yes. strengths of it, and and certainly I've seen it in in trials over the last couple of years, is it's got really good groundsel activity, which I think is is a relatively uh, hot topic at the moment. It seems to be selected out by the stack of herbicides that people are using in the autumn. So something that we can bring in to help control that will should help. Mm-hmm. And um, what sort of level of control for blackgrass? Yeah, it's 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 not going to be a standalone blackgrass product. Okay. Um, I've seen really good results, and I've seen variable results as well. Mm-hmm. It's going to be part of the stack. I think that's yes. that's that's yes. a given. To get to get yeah. a product to control blackgrass to ninety eight percent on its own, I think is a really big ask. It's yes. got good activity. I've seen activity ranging from sort of forty percent up to eighty five, ninety percent in really in in some really good situations. Uh, but there is a lot of variability within that, and that's the yeah. Same with any any uh, uh, autumn applied residual herbicide mm-hmm. for blackgrass control. So, uh, so it would need to be used in conjunction with current products and future yeah. products. Yeah, absolutely. And and whether whether you're looking at blackgrass or whether you're looking at, at ryegrass, I think that's one of the benefits of it. When it does come, will be the flexibility with it because it will be uh, you can apply pre-em or yeah. there will be an option for an early post-em application as well. So we should have that flexibility depending on whether you're targeting blackgrass, which is more of a, you know, one flush in the autumn, or mm-hmm. whether you're looking at ryegrass, which is, yeah. germinates over a longer period in yeah. the autumn. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be one of the reasons why we've seen better control of ryegrass, because it's a, a more residual product and it hangs around for a bit. Yeah. But certainly yeah. uh, it's going to need some partner products, whether that's in tank mix or in sequence. Okay. And... Um... Um, does it, what, what about the the broadleaf weeds? How, how's how's that looking? Is it? Yeah, yeah, really good actually. Um, uh, the only two species that I've 
can see it's got a real hole on our uh, it doesn't do pansies particularly no. well and it doesn't do fumetry particularly well okay um it does do uh it does do most of the other key species that you talk about, mm -hmm. things like your speedwells your chickweeds cleavers in the autumn um good activity on those uh, dead nettles yeah a whole a whole host really so you've sort of got the the spectrum that you'd expect from clomazone uh, plus it does the uh, has extra sort of grassweed activity as well so uh, yeah it should be pretty broad in fact if it was if it was if we were coming with it just as a broadleaf weed herbicide would be excited enough but the fact that yes. it's got yeah. really useful activity on black grass and, and good activity on rice grass is, is a is a big bonus for it yeah yeah and that will be uh on the market in the uk in 2024 yes fingers crossed fingers crossed excellent uh is there anything else behind it in the pipeline or even in front of it yeah well uh maybe not so relevant to to your arable listeners but we've got um a few years ago we had a a more extensive grassland range of product where we mm -hmm. had the triad our tribenuron product and cimarron, which was straight metsulfuron into grassland for ragwort control. And triad was particularly well used in, in uh, new lays in the autumn. Uh, and we're expecting to get that registration back any time now. So fingers crossed in a few weeks time, we'll have uh, triad back for use in new lays. So that, that'd okay. be a good one. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I think people will be happy with that. Um, yeah. In terms of uh, longer term, behind Isoflex, we've got, um, I mean, Isoflex will go into a range of other crops as well. We're hoping to get it into things like potatoes and sugar beet and pulses. Uh -huh. um, but beyond that, we've got some new chemistry coming for cereals, which uh, for septoria control. Uh, for rust control, and uh, we've got an aphicide coming. These are slightly further out, so 26, 27, something like that. But yeah, the, the pipeline looks really good, and that was why we were so excited to make the acquisition of the DuPont piece because their, yes. their long-term pipe looked great. So if everything comes as it should, then every couple of years we should have, a, have an exciting new product to talk about. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And that's um, really why... Sorry, John. That, go on, carry on. <laughs> and that's really why uh, FMCs, uh, we're building our presence in the market now. You know, we're building for the future. I've got a bigger team now. We, you'll, you'll, the listeners will see more input into the into regions from uh, from local FMC contacts. Yeah. So that's what mm -hmm. we're working towards. And, and and you've got. I mean, I was lucky enough to accompany you uh, in the spring to France to look at some trials. Um, have you got tri similar trials in this country? Yeah, we're going to be running a pretty extensive program of trials yeah. starting yeah. this autumn, both in rape and in in uh, in, in winter wheat, certainly. Yeah. Um, and the regional commercial technical managers for FMC will be will be demonstrating those to people locally. So, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Gareth. No that problem. Was, that was absolutely superb. Thank you. Perfect. Hi there. Sorry to interrupt our chat. My name is Matthew Tilt and I'm Machinery Editor for Farm Contractor and Large Scale Farmer magazine, the sister publication of Agronomist and Arable Farmer. Did you know that we also have a monthly podcast? Machinery Matters brings you the biggest news and interviews from machinery manufacturers, as well as information key to contractors and large scale farming operations. Want to satisfy your machinery cravings? Search for Machinery Matters on your favourite streaming platform. Glenn. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad, thank you very much. Um, I'll, I'll start off with um, my sort of usual questions. How did you, give me something of your background, how did you get there and 
and what does an environmental economist do? Yeah, good question. Um, a question that my <laughs> wife always asks me. She she still doesn't know what an environmental economist does. Um, but it's a, I think it's a fairly unusual route um, to be meeting here today because my first degree was in, in straight economics and then I disappeared into the city for several years, sort of um, managing pension funds and things like that. And being probably the only person in the city who read the Guardian, sort of suddenly sort of came to the conclusion that this is the sort of not necessarily what I want to do long term. So I went mm -hmm. a, a PhD in environmental economics and ended up at Ferris Science. And this. As an environmental economist, I look at um, what, environmental economy. So, how do you bring the environment into decision making? You know, whoever that decision maker is. You know, is it the government, and and how they develop um, policies to protect the environment? Um, but more recently, it's much more about sort of private decisions. So, how do land managers, landowners, interact with all these policies to make sort of financially and environmentally sensible decisions as to how they actually manage their land. Excellent. Um, there's a lot of talk about natural capital within the industry at the moment, but what is natural capital and why has it become such a buzzword? Yeah, I mean, natural capital is the sort of buzz phrase du jour, isn't it? Um, but it's, 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 it's a term that's evolved over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, it, they've been variously described as environmental goods and services, uh, nature's factory. Um, we had that, you know, term when we, everybody was talking about ecosystem services, which wasn't terribly helpful, really. Um, but essentially, it recognises that for a lot of sort of um, societal activity, we depend on nature for a range of inputs to whatever we do, um, and that is looks at sort of the different sort of stock of natural capital and the different flows that come from that natural capital, and and farmers are. And I think they're pretty much front and centre of, of natural capital because yes. they um, manage the resource that significantly influences the stocks and flows of natural capital. Yeah. And they already sort of um, think about it in terms of it as a private decision currently because you know, yes. you think about how they think about it with respect to rotations. They are, they are managing the uh, stock of the quality of their soil. And the quality of their soil will determine the flow of um, produce that comes from their, their natural capital asset, the soil, in that kind of private decision. But where we're moving to is that it's a much broader view of natural capital. And it's not just the private decision of the farmer, it's about how their, their decisions about how they manage their farm affects a range of other public goods that historically farmers won't necessarily have taken into account, you know, like carbon and biodiversity. So can you give me some farm examples of what could be classed as natural capital? Yeah, well, from their own private decision, I guess it, it is the, you know, it is um, privately um, sensible for a farmer to make sure that the quality of their soil is, maintains the flow of, of yield going forward. So that's their private decision. Yeah. But within that, there's these other these public ones I was talking about. So, you know, within the soil, they've also got carbon. But, you know, currently um, farmers don't get paid for carbon, whether it's below ground or above ground, or but they, you know, hopefully they will be getting paid for it in the future. Um, as well as that, there's all the sort of biodiversity, all the sort of flora and fauna on that is crucial to the operation um, of, of all of the other sort of um, stocks and flows of natural capital. 
um, and you know the, the flora and fauna determine how much carbon you've got on the farm. They will sort of affect the sort of water quality and air quality. Um, so farmers can sort of manage the land in a way that they can enhance, maintain, improve, and create. Yes. Uh, things like um, carbon and biodiversity. They can sort of help with sort of flood alleviation. And all of these things, you know, the carbon, biodiversity, and flood alleviation, et cetera, et cetera, they help other people. So therefore, the difficulty here is, you know, how do actually farmers get paid to help other people in, in the provision of these services, which historically they haven't been paid for? Mm -hmm. So even though it's still not clear what's going to happen with elms, um, do you think the opportunities with natural capital are going to become more prolific and therefore worthwhile for landowners and, yeah. and managers to pursue? Yeah, I, yes, I, mean, I think quite correctly saying it's not quite clear where Elms is heading at the moment. Um, but the opportunities are going to increase, I'm pretty sure of that. So, you know, you've got Elms, and however the SFI, the local recovery and the lake landscape recovery, how they, how they develop over time, but that's the more kind of traditional government paying for um, the for natural capital with those kind of payments. But, but linked to that, within um, landscape recovery and uh, probably local nature recovery, there's going to be a sort of private element. So it's not going to just be the government paying for these things. Yes. It's going to be um, other entities, private sector businesses, um, such as sort of uh, house developers, water companies, other corporates, and they will be paying for carbon and biodiversity, um, either because they have to under various sort of new regulations that are coming through by sort of net zero biodiversity net gain, or they may do it sort of electively because um, um, you know it's, it's, it's a, the corporates want to be seen to be doing the right thing. Yes. Um, and whether that is that that fund bit becomes mandated because there are there are other things going on um, with respect to sort of carbon accounting and nature accounting that will push corporate entities towards um, assessing what their impact is on carbon and biodiversity and how they can enhance it. And as we've mentioned earlier, you know, farmers are sort of central to um, the provision of those things. So, you know, it, it seems that it's a sort of a one-way better than that. Yeah. The, the opportunities are going to increase. But at the same time, it is extraordinarily complex. <laughs> so, you know, farmers yes. really have an easy job at the moment. So yes. adding complexity to their decision making is is um a, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. So how do you start and measure and understand the the natural capital or the biodiversity across the farm. Yeah. How do you, how do you measure that? How do you quantify it? Um, there are certain tools and metrics are starting to be developed um, by a range of um, folks, um, and as the, the, a farmer's probably got a, a reasonable idea about you know good bits of the farm and yes, the yeah, of the farm. But in order to benefit from these opportunities with respect to carbon you're going to be you're going to need to know more than that you're going to need to be able to start to quantify it mm -hmm. and so there are um different ways of doing this i mean with um and Sarah can sort of do a range of different things with farmers to start to, to measure these things we can either do it you know we can do it remotely and that's involves um you know sort of maps uh, satellite imagery uh, drone imagery uh, where, where each of these things are required, and those they can be used to um, produce carbon maps. They can be used to produce biodiversity maps. They can look at sort of water flows and things like that. 
um, and that's uh, as, a, as, a, as a, you know a remote way of doing it. We also have sort of ecologists who can go on site to look at the sort of uh, quality of habitats and the the conditions of habitats, but also the potential to create new habitats. Mm -hmm. And we also have um, you know laboratory capacity in that we can you know take samples to get into excruciating detail about the sort of you know the biodiversity of what's in your soil or what's in your water etc etc in terms of you know bacteria nematodes dna yeah um, so it, it, we can go from a sort of a fairly high level kind of overview of um, um monitoring and measuring carbon biodiversity um currently there on a site all the way through to you know excruciating detail in terms of you know, potentially finding a, a, a new bacteria known for science kind of thing yeah. So again, you know, all of these things can be deployed to uh, come up with a quantification um, of what you've currently got. Yeah. So Land 360, which is your or yeah. Ferrer's um, newly launched assessment tool, how does that work, and and, and what what does it offer to um, farmers and managers that is different than other stuff on the market? And I guess well, it, it, you know, we've just talked about this sort of brave new world um, and the added complexity of decision making for farmers. And to actually start to make these decisions, you, you actually need to know what you've got. Yes. Uh, and if you don't know what you've got, you can't make an informed decision going forward. Um, so at the very least, you need to start this process of uh, um, working out what you've got. Um, and at the simplest level, we can, as I said, we can do it this remotely. So we've got them, we can get the maps and the satellite imagery, and we will sort of look at each parcel of land on on a on a on a farm, and come up with a an external view of the um, carbon capacity of that land, and and the same for sort of the habitat in terms of the what habitats are there, and potentially what habitats could be created um, as well. So yeah. As you start to do that kind of thing, you, you, you start with, you know, okay, we found out with what you've got, but then you can also use the same kind of information to work out what you could get. Yeah. So, so when you find out what you've got, that's, that's what you would call a baseline. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, your start, that's your starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And you, without that, it's going to be quite difficult to actually make a decision in terms of what you should do with respect yeah. to this brave new world. Mm -hmm. Excellent stuff. Now, as a farmer, um, should I be taking action now, even though um, we don't know what's going on with elms, um, um, the future of the uh, industry, the future of, of, of government policy, the future of the government for that matter? Um, what, what, how, how, how should we go about this? Should we get stuck in now? Um, because it's going to happen eventually, no matter who's in charge or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and I mean, I agree with that. I think it's going to happen eventually. I mean, it, it, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of um, um, bumps in the road on the way there. Um, but and and it's up to you know, it's up to the farmer and, and how they um, make their decisions, how they perceive risk, um, whether they're risk averse or risk seeking or whatever. Um, and you know, there are some farmers who are always early movers, and those are the ones who are, are working on this kind of stuff now. Mm. Also, we're conscious of you know doing this stuff is, is not cheap and therefore um you need to be able to think about the investment that is required to get the baseline and, and where, that, where that may take you so you know we're working with a range of 
quite a very broad range actually of different um, land managers, shall I say, from the larger states who can probably afford to do this earlier just because they can afford to take um, a sort of a longer term view um, and they're spreading the cost over a larger land area. They're also starting to work with um, farmers who are grouping together to get this kind of baseline. Yes. Um, and, you know, for example, we're working with one of the uh, FWAG groups. Yes. To, to get the groups of farmers that they can um, allay the cost over a broader yeah. area. So to each individual, it becomes a bit cheaper. Yeah. Um, and we're also working on one of the um, um, ELMS tests and trials, which, is, again, is around this sort of collective working yeah. by the farmers to, to work together on this. So, I mean, this is a long way round of saying, you know, obviously I would say, yes, you should do, do it now. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I recognise that uh, not everybody is going to be in the position to be able to do that. Yeah. But I would certainly start thinking about how I might do it. You know, do I, can I do it on my own? Can I, or can I do it with my neighbouring farms? Should we actually club together to start? Yes. Yeah. This? Um, and I would certainly sort of recommend that kind of thinking just about when do I actually need to do this and when can I afford to do this? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and back to my early question, how do you measure those changes? How do you... Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, with the baseline, you've got your starting position. So, yes. um, and then there's this bit about, you know, where can you get to? So that, that within that, in, within that decision, there is the farmer has to think about what they want to do to their land. Um, what changes can they make? What can they enhance? Um, some parts of it uh, can they plant woodland can they plant meadow um what what kind of lower quality agricultural land you know grade three and four um is yeah. has the potential to shift from sort of um produce yielding to carbon and biodiversity yielding yeah, yeah. And, what, and what is the economics of the change of that so you know we've got the baseline you can work out where you can get to you can then look at the potential uh, income that could be available through carbon credits or biodiversity credits and does that um, income potential is that greater than the cost of doing the switch of that grade three and four land to yes carbon and biodiversity production yes okay okay well thank you that, glenn that was um a brief but um very descriptive view of what what is going to happen what might happen or <laughs> What has happened, um, we can only wait and see in the next few months what is going to happen. Um, but I'm, I'm sure, some, as you say, something is going to happen, whatever. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much. And it's nice it's the first um, here to get um, an environmental economist point of view. Absolutely. We will be coming back to you, no doubt. <laughs> Delighted to talk to you anytime you like. Yeah. To to explain the how how what a wonderful job being an environmental economist is. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So Absolutely. thanks for listening to Arable Chat. Don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast streaming platform. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, why not leave us a review? Until next time, goodbye.